0: Maggie Queenie is the author of Settler, Tupelo Press, recipient of the 2019 Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize, the Ruth Stone Scholarship, and a 2019 Individual Artist Program Grant from the City of Chicago. Her most recent work is found or forthcoming in the New Republic, Guernica, the Missouri Review, and the American Poetry Review. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Syracuse University and reads and writes in Chicago. Maggie, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, when did you discover a love for writing and ultimately pursuing an MFA in creative writing?
1: So I actually started out as a fiction writer. I feel like that's kind of a dirty <laughs> a dirty secret. Um, and I actually remember the first... Well, I remember the first short story that I cared about writing, and it was very not a good story. Um, it was in fifth grade. Our teacher <laughs> our teacher had adapted Oregon Trails um, to be kind of like a, a classroom exercise, and one of our, our challenges was to, like, write a short story, so I wrote, like, a really, really bad, like, cowgirl <laughs> short story, but um, what I remember most is actually, like, losing time when writing it. Like, I started to write it I was maybe ten, um, and like two hours later, I was like, "What happened?" Um, and it was like magic, right? It was like mm-hmm. teleporting. Um, so I wrote a lot of fiction. In uh, I would say I didn't really start until probably college, um, and poetry as well. And then I I decided to get my MFA in poetry instead of fiction because I thought poetry was more difficult. So yeah, it was kind of a kind of a roundabout way. I didn't really consider myself a poet for a while. Um, and now I write mostly poetry and every now and again, we'll write a short story.
0: Well, this kind of ties into my second question is I recently attended a a Billy Collins reading and he spoke about finding your voice and knowing that happens when you realize that no one could have written the poem except you. Uh, you talk about getting to poetry later, which was the same with me. At what point did you feel confident in your voice?
1: I mean, I don't know if I really feel... I don't know what that would feel like to feel confident in my voice. I I guess I feel, um, like for me, it's a question of like, is this my voice or can I see other voices or influences kind of creeping in, in a way that I'm not cognizant of, or I don't want to say like in control of, but don't mean maybe in a way that I don't mean, um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know, honestly, if I'm confident in my voice. I feel like at some point, your voice is the only thing that you can mm-hmm. speak in. So it's not really even a decision. My feelings about it are kind of tangential. They don't really matter. Like, I could either speak or not speak. But um, ultimately, it's going to be my voice, even if I kind of, like, cover it over with, like, other people's voices and, like, fancy tricks that I learned from other poets, which I definitely do. But, yeah. Um, Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, it's always like
0: you and a piece of paper, right? Yeah, well, I know I've found where I've read something and I go, I've never tried that style of poetry and I should challenge myself. And then I'll come up with a first draft that feels very much like an impersonation. And then uh, through the editing and revision, it'll become something that is that I felt I would have written. And it's it's hard to describe, but you kind of look at it and go, yeah, that's my poem, not an impersonation of somebody else
1: yeah and I think that even in our I mean impersonating I think is like how a lot of us learn how to write and we just kind of figure out like what impersonations feel true if that makes sense mm-hmm. so I guess I don't really think of it as like a dichotomy of of like my voice versus other folks's voice but like thinking about reading other people's work and then writing in response or in conversation or collaboration leads me closer to my voice even if I realize, like, oh, like that person's voice isn't my voice. I'm not comfortable. That doesn't fit right. This, this seems more like what I want to do, or like what's closer to what I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's kind of like all part of, all part of the the work of finding the voice or stepping into your voice or however folks want to talk about it. Um, yeah. I, I mean, even when we imitate, we can't totally assume anyone else's voice it's still our voice Mm -hmm. and we're just kind of maybe learning something about its outer ranges
0: so you successfully had your poems placed in multiple prestigious journals and like all poets have waited many months only to have a poem you're passionate about rejected what advice do you have for poets starting their journey and about to take that terrifying first leap into looking for a home for poetry they're passionate about
1: yeah, I mean, no one likes rejection, but it is just a part of everyone's life as a writer. So, um I think it's for me kind of balancing a need or a pressure to like please other people and to please myself. So I think i've I've tried to like refocus or reframe what I think my work is. and my work is to write poems. Um, and part of that work is to find that poem a nice home. Um, like an adequate home, a good home for it. But um, I can't really be concerned with like why it didn't get into a certain publication or if certain people didn't like it. Like sometimes I think it's, it's good then to kind of look back at the poem and be like, well, is this really finished? Like, is this where I want it to be? But um, I, think that, I think that if at the end of the day, you're really worried about what other people think, I think that for me, at least, that I can't write like that. So I kind of have to write without thinking about other people, which I know sounds terrible. And then when I'm I'm working to house my poems or home my poems, um, I just try to think of it as like this is the very last step and like taking care of this piece that um, I've worked really hard to take care of, but I can't control what what other people do. Um, And it's okay to be frustrated, you know? Like, it's okay to feel bad if you get a rejection. Like, no one likes to be rejected, but it happens. You know, the poem that I submitted and that won the Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize had been rejected a dozen times before that. So, you know, and that I think is true for most most people I know, right? Like, their books are rejected 20 times before it wins a prestigious prize. and that's just kind of part and parcel of it. So, I mean, it's not gonna feel good, but I'd say try to spend as little of your time thinking about it as possible. It's outside your control. All you can control is is your art practice. And the practice is really, in my mind, what matters, what needs attention.
0: That it's great that you've I've heard this story several times of the award-winning something in the mm-hmm. in the in the field of poetry and many other fields that is just the end point. Of many, many, many rejections. And it's so listeners, please uh, park that in the back of your mind when you get a rejection, is that that might be the stepping stone to the ultimate award-winning thing. So uh, going back to your book, uh, the title of your book, Settler, combined with the striking cover, really love the cover, by the way, which is an aged and obscured photo conveying long ago, immediately sets a tone and expectation Book titles and covers are crafted after the poems have been written. At what at one point did you realize you had sufficient material for a chapbook, or was this a book a cohesive whole from the beginning with themes and form, a defined project? Um, usually, it's the first, the uh, the former than the latter. But what was how did this book come together? Yeah,
1: so this one was the latter. This one, um, so this book was actually actually born out of a a joke that um, I used to have with a good writing friend of mine, um, basically about like how worse our lives would be or more difficult our lives would be. Like if we'd been born 200 years ago, I was a breech birth, so I wouldn't even be here. Um, And so uh, I had this month where I was writing in community with a few writing friends. Um, And I was kind of just working out this idea of what my life would have or could have been like Again, in some kind of like undefined like period in the U.S., even though my ancestors weren't here during like settler times in the United States, um, but just trying to imagine like what my great 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 grandmother's lives might have been like, and I don't really have access to that family history, so it really was like uh, an imaginative exercise for me. Um, and so I was doing poem a day with a few friends and. I was like, I really love sonnets, so I write a lot of sonnets. And I was like, well, I have to write a poem every single day. Um, I'm just gonna kind of be like grappling with this idea of gender um, and violence uh, in this kind of like other world or other time, which feels like the past, but with what's happening right now in the US with abortion rights, feels like it might also be, again, our our present and our future, unfortunately. yeah, so not all of those those poems obviously made it into this book. It's a chapbook, so there's tw- I think twenty one, um, and a few that I wrote after that that you know month period was over. But I, I wrote a few of them, and then I was like, oh, like this is a this is a project that like has some kind of like there's something there that I need to uncover um, that I need to unravel. So I just kind of kept going back to it. And I, I like to write a lot in series um, because I think that for me, at least it takes the pressure off of getting it all down in one draft or getting it all right in one draft. So the idea of having many days of 14 lines to kind of explore this world was really exciting to me. Um, and I, I, I write in a lot of series still um, because it's just like more room to play, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of how this came about. So it's it's a strange little story. I didn't really set off intending to write it or really realizing what I was writing about um, until I'd written a few of the poems. And then I was like, oh, like this is this is where my brain is working at the moment.
0: Very very cool. That leads right into the next question I have is uh, about your process for researching details and images that you haven't personally experienced. In paper you write transmuted cotton inner bark pounded, rags torn of clothing and boiled, that oiled chapped udders shrouded the heirloom pendant, now bleached egg white, white of milk molar, pounded thin and toothy. What a wonderfully poetic passage, first of all. And uh, so how did you find these details? And you've already mentioned that this is a book of invention, but it's a book of invention that I suspect as a reader involved quite a bit of research to be true to whatever maybe mythical time period you're referring to.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I was definitely unconsciously drawing on um, a lot of literature that uh, I've read about kind of like what we would maybe call like the settler colonialist uh, period in in the U S which is obviously still ongoing, but um, you know, thinking about the time, like the West was one quote unquote, um, and the, the sources are, are you know, um, folks who are heavily researched, like Cormac McCarthy, but also this is kind of embarrassing, but like Little House on the Prairie, <laughs> um, which like as a small child, you know, like I remember reading a passage from, I think it was Little House on the Prairie, where they got oranges for Christmas. And like as a 10 year old or whenever I read that, really just, um, I mean, you know, if you go into any supermarket now in the U.S., we have, like, such a, like, smorgasbord of of various, like, fruits and vegetables, so it, like, kind of blew my mind that that was seen as something that was, um, uh, like, so special, and the, the, the paper poem that you read was kind of the same thing, right, mm-hmm. because, like, paper wasn't until like pretty recently, like hasn't really been something that has been cheap, that has been accessible. Literacy has been kept from groups of people, um, traditionally marginalized groups, women, among other folks. And so, this idea that like now I'm surrounded in this wealth of paper and you know pens that are very like cheap to buy and the World Wide Web, um, but you know two generations ago, maybe women in my family wouldn't have paper to play on in the way that I do. Um, And so both kind of uh, trying to honor that and then also trying to, um, I don't know, not take it for, for granted. in in this moment, uh, it's something I'm still working on.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, I've asked, several guess how they approach structuring their books. In Settler, there is a, there's balance, three sections, each with roughly the same number of poems, each a single page. How did you decide where to begin and where to end?
1: Yeah, I think that the beginning part of the book like, kind of announced itself as the beginning. Um, I didn't think about it as a collection. I was working on individual poems, probably for like a year. And I, I often will like, I like to let things breathe. So I will set it down, take a lot of time away. And when I had returned, I was like, okay, like this is something it's not maybe like a full, full length book, but like, it's a small project. Um, And the first poem, Female, I thought was important to set up the rest of the book. um, Because I think it's, it's an, I think it's an introduction to like the themes and the images that the rest of the book kind of picks up. Um, and I also wanted to stress gender from the beginning. Um, this is a poem about women, right? About uh, women singular, about women plural. Um, and I don't really know if I can explain why I thought it was should be like a, a triptych uh, I don't know. It just felt balanced that way, if that makes Mm. sense. (laughs) No, it
0: totally makes sense. No, it's funny. I get asked all the time, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? And it's, it's a feeling, it's a sense of, of balance, a sense of symmetry, a sense of rhythm. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's hard to put your finger on where those decisions come from.
1: Yeah. And the, the last poem of the book too, I wanted it to like stretch out in some way into a future that might be the past, but might be the future. Um, a lot of my work deals with <laughs> with trauma and violence and like cycles of violence um, in my family and also just like on a larger scale. And I, in the book, it was important for me, and in the poems, it was important for me to kind of be constantly moving between like the individual I and the plural first person of the the we as well. So like, you know, the story. Here, whatever it might be is just like one of many that overlaps with many other women's. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted that kind of like bleed out into the, into the future beyond the the last page of the book.
0: Yeah. And you, you touched on there that, you know, the, the themes that you write about are, are pretty serious themes. And I've been to open mics where, poets have had traumatic experiences and they express them. And yet I feel like the poetry has gotten overwhelmed by the traumatic experience. And how do you achieve that balance of still conveying these powerful experiences while ensuring that it remains poetic? Because I think that's a very tricky thing to do.
1: Yeah, for sure. And not everything I write does, right? So we were talking before about you know, like, what the work you don't see, and so, um, I think sometimes I definitely have written poems that were less poetic and maybe more for me to process, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, I think in general, I don't like to focus or I don't like to keep my focus on the traumatic act or event, like, I'm just not as interested in it. We have um a ton of literature uh (laughs) that that narrates trauma right Mm -hmm. so um I'm someone who's interested in kind of what happens after um and thinking about the cycles of violence how they trace through generations um my view is always like a little bit to the side of what that actual violence is, because at the end of the day, I don't think violence is really that interesting. Um, I think uh, I'm interested in why violence happens and how it changes the world, how it changes the people who commit it, how it changes the people who are on the receiving end of it, everyone else who's involved, um, and how it changes the world that they all like live in and experience after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so i mean i'm a I'm a poet who identifies as as disabled. I have complex PTSD, so I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, and I'm always working to kind of articulate like how the world is different after like life-altering or like prolonged complex trauma um, instead of articulating what that trauma is.
0: No, I think it's very effective and settler and for folks who pick up the book and read it. You'll you'll be very moved and it'll stick in your head, but you also won't feel like you've been beaten over the head. If you will. You haven't the the book doesn't tell you how to feel, but you will end up feeling a, a strong sense coming off the book without you feeling like it's been rammed into you so that's very effective and hard to do really hard to do so the um so many poems in this collection are reinventions of the sonnet you mentioned you love the sonnet the form is there in silhouette sometimes an impression but not strictly constrained particularly in the second section this makes possible the opening lines from hand her always her hand on the dead-eyed slate at the front of the room Showing how we should, the slanted lines like staves, line climb and loop like flags snaking the wind of lost battlefields. Ah, oh, just let that rattle in your head. It's just beautiful. I love it. Uh, how do you discover the form you'd like to use, particularly where there's so many are sonnet close, sonnet adjacent um, forms?
1: Yeah, um, so do you, are you asking about like how I decide like what the variation of the sonnet is?
0: Yeah, or, like, or maybe why? maybe let me focus the question this way. I mean, I've talked to um, some poets like A.E. Stallings, uh, interviewed her, and uh-huh. she likes to take the, the decision of the form off the table, and I'm going to write it in this form, and then the poem fits the form. I'm completely the opposite. I just write images and phrases and words, and I don't worry at all about what the form is. And then I start the work of finding the form that fits whatever initial raw material I've created. And I've heard it both ways from different poets. So I'm, uh, that's really what I'm getting at is, do you go in with a, a idea that this is the form this will take? Or is it looser in the beginning and then you find the form afterwards?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that clarification. Um, I'm, I, I'm a little bit more like Stallings where I, I think of the form first or sometimes like in connection with like a problem or a question or an idea that is bothering me. Um, And I think about form as a way to contain um, and also to to focus like a frame that focuses something that I kind of can't contain in any other way. So I I write other poems that are in free verse. um, But I go to form Again, when there's kind of something that's like too difficult to tackle, without like a neat little trap, which is sometimes how I think about the sonnet. Um, Stallings, she's awesome. Um, she adheres very closely to form always, which is something I really admire. Um, I wanted to be a little bit looser here with what what a sonnet could be. Um, in part because I had so many of them Mm -hmm. that I kind of wanted them to sound out like what could be the limits of these 14 lines or what different shapes could these, um, 14 line poems take. Um, and some, you know, like have a Volta have like a pretty clear closing couplet, um, or are, uh, uh, split into like an octave and a sestet. Um, but others are just kind of 14 lines and like, other things happen and shift. but I was still thinking about things like like the sonnet shape, like how sonnets develop. Um, thinking about things like like voltas, um, even if they aren't really clear always where they they are. Um, that turn was something that was important to me. Um, and sometimes, I mean in this in this case, you know, I'd thought about the sonnet. In part because the sonnet, in my mind, um, as much as I love it, is also like uh, I think a colonizing form or a form that has been used um, in tandem with with colonization. And so, thinking also about like how I could freak that a little bit, and like what is what is kind of kept within this really strict form, and like how can it be warped by what wants to to break out or to create another shape that's maybe more organic, less strict, more fluid. Um, And so that was part of my thinking about like sonnet versus like a Villanelle, for example.
0: Wonderful. All right. Well now I'm going to pass the mic over to you to read several selections from your book.
1: All right. So I'm going to read three poems from my chapbook Settler, and these are all poems of 14 lines. Um, They all have a title of a single word, that they kind of seek to define. So the first poem I'm going to read opens the collection and it's called Female. We buttoned shut along our spines, padded skirts swinging belt-like along the knotted, the hewn plank walks. Above the mud, tentacles strong, we float in blooms and bandages. Naked legs seen only by our husbands as they held our wax white thighs on our wedding nights like two knives against that sharpening stone, cutting out child after child. What we were for, breaking the animal down into parts in the darkening house, the feeding lengths of wood to stove, parabolic needle and thread to mend the tearing, wearing our emptying clothes. And the second poem I'm going to read is called Progeny. In unsteady firelight, we studied the arabesque clouds animated in the plates of a yellowing page to find the girl born blue, her eyes two closed lines, impersonal as print or fossils, lasted not a month, each like a dream, haunt and half recall, The river-swallowed boy, his small body never found after the flood returned to earth, to the ocean, where we imagined him floating, asleep among bait fish and sharks, maroon shrouded, lace-like seaweed, salt glittering. He returns in nightmare, serpentine current wriggling from his mouth to baptize the floor. We caught his mud-soft hands, offered buttermilk, lard-coated bread, our loss part of a larger design, true, but the sky over us was always so blue and empty and unbound, clouds shielding what heaven we knew of, darkened tally of grave mounds, the shadow so swift we were forced to stare at the sun for what circled, dirt greening year after year. And the last poem that I am going to read is called Cloth. Cloth. We softened our bodies with the fistlets of primroses blurring into pastel burrs. The stripes bleed, the netted plaid puddles into singular, unremarkable color. Flowers shame us, petals curled into lashes, paired nail, joint cut, or feathers barbed in hues without name, a shade blue only points to. Mimic of rough walls, eyes on splintered lintels, cloaked in wood smoke, our parts separate along the seams, flattened into maps over the table. Unraveling threads expose the unbroken wax of unsunned skin beneath the pull and balance of warp and woof use
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your voice. And female, I was particularly moved by, and I'll just read this one little passage again, our wax white thighs on our wedding nights like two knives against that sharpening stone, cutting out child after child. Going back to that point I made about how you're not beating the reader over the head with a message wow, is that a powerful image that just rattled in my head after I read it. Um, So I'm always curious where poems begin during the initial writing process and how it changed over time. So this feels to me like this was sort of an anchor idea to this poem that you may have built the poem around, but I could be totally wrong, and it started somewhere else. But uh, thinking about that poem specifically, where did it begin and how did it change as you edited it and revised it?
1: I think this one actually probably started, if I'm – this is my guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know this is, this
0: is a hard question to ask because it probably was a while ago. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I appreciate the question. i'll do I'll do my best to remember and to not lie. Uh, I believe that this poem started with the um, with the title. Mm. Um, and so thinking about um, what it would mean to be a woman, to be a female person um, in this kind of other time. Um, and, uh, I think it probably also started with the image of the, um, the mud and the planks over the mud. There's, uh, I really was in a a heavy Cormac McCarthy period for a while and I forget which book it is of his, but I think it's probably Blood Meridian where in the beginning there's this like very, um, horrendous, like murder scene, uh, that happens in, um, this really muddy like back part of a bar and that always stuck with me. Um, so I think it was probably the the mud and the dresses where this poem started um, Yeah and I, I think about I think about clothing a lot. I think about material things a lot. Um, I'm kind of like an incorrigible thrifter and uh, often think about like, just objects and like what kind of energy or stories they hold. Um, yeah, so those plank walks, I think is is probably probably where I started there. Um, I often don't know where I'm going in a poem, mm-hmm. and that's like that to me is exciting. And also usually a reason that I'll use form is like I'll have something. I always think of it as like the bit of grit that begins, that hopefully <laughs> comes out as a pearl, right? But um, some kind of like small nagging thing that I have to attend to. Um, so yeah, I usually have no idea where my poems are going to go, um, and often they go nowhere, you know. Um, but sometimes, sometimes they go somewhere that that seems like a place.
0: A small nagging thing that you have to attend to. I-, I love that quote. And I would say, yes, there's, I'll just have this feeling that I've just got to get this out of me. Yeah. And sometimes I get it out of me and it's just an exercise and it doesn't lead to anything interesting, but I have to get it out and down on paper. Yeah. I love that. So in Progeny, I love the line. He returns in nightmare, serpentine, current wriggling from his mouth to baptize the floor. This poem powerfully captures the harsh loss inherent in settler life the form of the poem close to a prose poem really amplifies the macabre. How did you find the the form of this poem? I mean, they're all variations, but in this case, be, almost being like a prose poem and how you didn't basically start that way and then force it into the structure of the other poems in the book.
1: Yeah, this poem just kind of wanted more room between the lines because, I mean, a lot of it is occupied with dead children. So... <laughs> Uh, I f- it, like I was talking a little bit before about like narrating or aerating is a part of my process, but, um, I mean, I do write a lot about trauma and violence, and so um, often, often kind of leaving this like extended or exaggerated room between the lines and in, in my mind, I hope for it to be like a gesture of care towards the reader um, in that there's kind of like more space um, to approach something that is maybe difficult to approach. Um, and like as a reader, that's something that usually helps me, um, with content material that might be like particularly difficult for whatever reason. And I probably also needed it myself, to be honest, like as a, just like as the person writing it, um, to have a lot of I don't think empty space, but like white space, um, to balance what I think is like a like a really heavy content in the poem. Um, I'm a pretty visual person, so I often think about uh, I often think about poems and just mostly on a, a visual field. <laughs> and then um, when I need to read them out loud, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I I usually like go by how it. Looks, um, and this to me just needed it needed to take up more space, and it needed to have more like breath or air um, around it.
0: Yeah, I think that the visualizing of poems is so important, and then the audio experience is the second. When I had the when I interviewed Olivia Gatwood, she's a wonderful performance poet, and she really each of her poems is really two versions. There's the poem that you read on the page. And then she's done an audio book using, you know, that she narrated. And it's almost like a second book that is the same, but different. Um, Because depending on the form of the poem, you have to rethink it in terms of performance. So, yes.
1: I'm just not that good of a performer.
0: It's uh yeah, it's a it's a it's something that I actually uh, I interviewed the poetry coach that I work with who is a theater major and competes in poetry competitions and he really educated me on how to approach it. It is definitely a skill that I did not have and I'm still learning. Um yeah. but it is a skill for sure. Yes. 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 So to close, uh, what are you working on now and what are your plans to support Settler which as you mentioned is uh devastatingly relevant. I wish it were not so relevant right now, but it's devastatingly relevant. So, um, what are your plans to support the book? And then also what are you working on next?
1: Yeah. Um, so I always am am kind of floating between a few different projects. So I'm actually right now kind of getting near the end of like what I hope will be my first hybrid, like visual piece. It's kind of, I don't really know how to explain it. It's like a graphic lyric essay maybe um so I'm hoping to close up that soon and then I'm starting a a project that will be poems and and maybe like other interdisciplinary and hybrid works um about the idea of of homes and houses like specifically within the the context of domestic violence um but also um you know things like climate change, which is a different kind of violence, or a different kind of domestic violence, maybe. Um, yeah, so that one's still kind of in the the planning stages. As I'm I'm wrapping this this visual work up, um, I I don't, I don't know I don't know how to um, support a book at this moment in the political climate, to be honest. Um, Yeah, it feels uh, uh, both very surreal and and not surreal at all that some of these issues are issues that might be, uh, (laughs) yeah, something that a lot of people in the U.S., um, particularly people who are already marginalized, are going to have to be dealing with. So I don't think I have a good answer for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I... (sighs) yeah, I'm having a lot of feelings about this particular political moment in time. Um, I wish that this book wasn't relevant. (laughs) I wish it wasn't. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry. That's not really an answer, but I kind of,
0: I think the same would apply to authors like Margaret Atwood where they wrote, you know, Handmaid's Tale decades ago and it's still so relevant. Um, well i'm yeah. i'm I certainly very much appreciate what you created with Settler, and it was a reminder, particularly for someone like myself, that is as far away from being marginalized as you could imagine as a tall white cis male. I mean I, I basically check every box for not being marginalized. and um, I, I just it it just your book is very is a very important reminder. Uh, that nostalgia is not something that you want to strive for. Uh, there's a lot of ugliness in nostalgia, so yeah. I know this is. We're ending on a very heavy note here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's usually true. I think honestly, I think about uh, it's not really a question about um, or not an answer towards like how to support this book, but I think of my my work as an educator and yes. like, how I am going to be kind of fighting um against the present and one one future that might happen um i yeah and i want to thank you for this time this was a really lovely conversation and your questions were so thoughtful um i really appreciate the care that you've taken
0: i want to thank you for taking the time and trusting me to interview you because it's a Uh, there's a trust element there that's so critical when you're interviewed. So thank you so much and for sharing your poetry with the viewless wings poetry podcast today.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Thanks. The viewless wings poetry podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin ranch, subscribe to the viewless wings poetry podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.